Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um Many of you already know that we are marking a somber anniversary today. It was two years ago today um, in Satilla Shores, a suburb outside of Brunswick or a neighborhood of Brunswick, when Ahmad Arbery was, and now we can say it because two juries have confirmed it, was murdered by three white men with racial hatred in their hearts. Um, the day is going to be marked. Uh, the family will be up at the Center for Civil and Human Rights for a private uh, uh, dedication in which they'll talk about Ahmad Arbery's life. And, of course, it was just yesterday that the jury in the federal hate crimes trial down in Brunswick returned verdicts of, uh, in all three, of all three men uh, being found guilty of committing the crime out of racial hatred. Uh, we're going to start the show by talking about uh, the outcome of the trial, what we think it means to all of us uh, as we move forward. Uh, let's uh, welcome the panel and g- begin the discussion. Greg Bluestein is with us, as he is on Wednesdays. You know Greg. He's the political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and the author of Flipped, the new book out March 22nd on um, how Georgia went from red to blue in uh, 2020. Uh, Greg, I want to say a quick thing. I, a couple times, I think, when I've introduced you and mentioned the book, I've said, you know, you can order it on Amazon. And I've heard from a, a few people who support independent big bookstores that they wish I'd tell people, go buy it at your local bookstore. And I'm, I'm glad they've pointed that out, and they should do just that, Greg. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, they can pre-order it anywhere, including their local bookstores. And, and I'll say the, the Arbery um, the Arbery tragedy is a, is a major part of the book as well, of course, because it helped define last year's and sorry, 2020's uh, election cycle in Georgia. Well, thank you for uh, being with us today. Uh, we're also joined by uh, Leroy Chapman, managing editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who uh, is wearing this morning one of the greatest T-shirts I've seen in a long time. And it says the greatest. And it's a photograph of uh, Muhammad Ali standing over Sonny Liston. Leroy, thanks for wearing a great T-shirt today. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for noticing uh, my fashion choice, Bill. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> well, we're very happy. <laughs> we're happy you could be with us. Amy Steigerwald is here. You know she is a professor of political science at Georgia State University and associate chair of the political science department at Georgia State. Hi, Amy. How are you today? We're doing good. Ho- hoping it'll stop raining soon. I, I need to go on a run, darn it. Yeah, it's supposed to get sunny this afternoon. Fred Smith is here as well, professor, professor of constitutional law at Emory University. Fred, how's the semester gone for you? Uh, well, it's going well. So it's great to be back in the classroom again and uh, actually you know, see folks' faces with masks. <laughs> uh, and yeah. uh, it's, it's exciting energy. What do you teach in this semester? Uh, constitutional law and local government. 
Okay. Oh, local government. That would be this a, a particularly interesting time to be talking about local government. We're also joined today by um, Benjamin Payne. He is a Savannah Bureau Chief for Georgia Public Broadcasting for GPB News down there. Um, ben Payne, we're glad you're here. And I want to start with you because you've been staffing the uh, federal hate crimes trial as it went on all last week and were there, down there yesterday uh, when the uh, jury returned its verdict. Uh, first of all, thanks for being here. And why don't you start us off by talking to us about um, what the reaction outside the courthouse particularly was like, and, and then give us a little uh, picture of how things went down when the family came outside to address the crowd. Sure. Um, well, I can speak. I want to start off right away with uh, with family's reaction because they've you know been supporting uh, the whole prosecution of this case and have have really been pursuing justice throughout, uh, especially because or rather especially after the plea deal, which was offered by federal prosecutors, uh, was was actually signed into with Travis McMichael and Greg McMichael, and the family came out vehemently vehemently opposed to that. And that was actually one of the first things that Wanda Cooper Jones talked about yesterday after the verdict was reached, after she was thanking prosecutors for uh, pursuing the the charges and trial uh, in court. She w- was quick to say, uh, you know, this almost didn't happen. Uh, the, the, the victory that we have here today, which she called a small victory, um, it wouldn't have happened were it not for the emotional testimony from uh, members of Arbery's family. Uh, to Judge Wood, uh, asking her, pleading her, really begging her to reject the terms of that deal uh, and to force the case to go to trial, which is exactly what happened. So, as I said, Wanda Cooper Jones, um, very relieved by the verdict, obviously, but also calling it a quote small victory, because obviously Arbery is her son is not alive uh, today, and and were it not for the fact that he was black, he would still be alive today, is what essentially the jury found. Um, and she was also quick to talk about Jackie Johnson, who is the former district attorney uh, in Glenn County, who was at the time the district attorney uh, during the murder. And so she had come under intense uh, scrutiny and criticism for her handling of it, with some saying essentially she was trying to cover up uh, the uh, defendant's involvement in it. She was eventually ousted uh, in the election and then is now uh, under indictment for violating her oath of office. Um, and then also Ben Crump, a civil rights attorney who has represented the family of George Floyd. Um, he was uh, outside the courthouse yesterday and he said that, you know, we're still pursuing what he called full justice. We have now justice in the criminal uh, justice system, but we now need to pursue justice in the uh, civil system. And so he was speaking about a civil lawsuit that has been filed on behalf of Wanda Cooper Jones, which names a lot of people, uh, including the uh, defendants, uh, Travis McMichael, uh, Greg McMichael, and the neighbor, uh, William Roddy Bryan. Um, you, uh, in the article that you posted on the GPB website, you quote uh, Wanda Cooper Jones as saying, among other things, I knew Ahmad's hands were in this from the very beginning. The way Ahmad left here, I knew we would get victory on the state level and on the federal level. I look at this as a milestone, another challenge that we've overcome. Um, uh, Greg, the New York Times reported that um, uh, Merrick Garland held a news conference in Washington uh, in response to the verdict. 
Um, and when he was asked about the plea deal that was first offered by prosecutors, he apparently became very emotional. And um, the New York Times suggested he actually uh, uh, shed a few tears uh, and, and said he could understand the passion of Wanda Cooper Jones, uh, given that she had lost uh, her son, Greg. I thought that was um, very uh, a powerful uh, uh, thing to read about. Yeah, this, this is a priority of, of this Justice Department. Uh, Merrick Garland said no one should fear that if they go out for a run, they will be targeted and killed because of the color of their skin. Um, and, and, and since since Joe Biden's election, you know, the U.S. Justice Department has made a pro- priority of prosecuting hate crimes. Um, so this was sort of a marker that they laid down um, doing this trial because, you know, as you mentioned, this did not have to go um, to trial. Um, but, but it did, and it sent a message, I think, throughout the country. Uh, Fred, um, I'd just like to get your general reaction to having watched all of this unfold from the state trial, the guilty verdicts there, but now the fact that the government was able to prove that these were indeed three men who murdered because of their racist animus. Yeah, right. So the second um, verdict is about whether or not uh, they selected the victim on the basis of his race. Um, And uh, the prosecutors... uh, did a really good job of painting a picture um, where the jury was persuaded that no, that if Ahmad Arbery were white, this would not have happened. Um, that there were other white individuals who'd done exactly what he did uh, in terms of whether it be jogging or, or checking out um, that, that particular uh, construction. Um, and so, uh, you know, just kind of on the, on the merits, the prosecutors uh, made their burden uh, beyond a reasonable doubt and persuaded um, the jury. Um, you know, more broadly, um, one has to uh, feel a sense of closure for his family in particular, uh, which, uh, you know, pushed just a few weeks ago um, to stop a plea deal from happening. Um, the net result of which would have been that uh, they would have served, the defendants would have served a time in, uh, in a federal prison um, in a more comfortable setting than they will uh, in uh, in state prison, um, and so you know this is this is uh, this is yes this is about Mayor Garland and the Department of Justice, but um, it is also about um, and in some ways more so about um, his family pushing for justice and uh, seeking closure. Uh, Leroy, um, I'm reading over again uh, Benjamin Payne's piece in, at the GPB website. Of course, you have people covering the stories as well. Um, and, and Marcus Arbery made a couple statements that uh, are in the GPB story that Benjamin Payne did. He loved his family, Marcus Arbery said. He called us every day. If he had one word to tell us, guess what that was? I love you, pops. I love you, mama. He always told you that. Now, each time I don't hear that, I'm struggling with that every day. And he went on and he said he loved running and working out. So did his dad. He said, Daddy, when you work out, you be in another world. If you've got little problems in your world, um, you don't worry about them because working out takes all that away from you. Leroy? Yeah. You know, for me, um, there is something personal to this, too. I have boys who are about that age. And uh, one son in particular who uh, was a high school wrestler, uh, muscular, and, and I think in some quarters might, you know, cut a threatening, uh, uh, he, he might seem threatening when he, when he isn't. So um, given that, 
um, it, it's, the, it's the worst fear. Uh, it's your child being judged by, uh, you know, things that um, people who don't know him, uh, people who have something in their hearts, and I think that uh, what uh, was clear in this trial that came from the digital footprints, uh, what we saw was stark and ugly and mean and hateful. Uh, 20 years ago, uh, you would not have those digital footprints. You'd have to have witnesses who you bring up would have to testify to it. And so what we see today is the power of what the technology was able to bring forth. So what we've got uh, is, uh, is a dad who, uh, in looking at some of the coverage of the trial, uh, they insisted on making sure that that was visible because uh, they lived the nightmare, and that is their child was uh, judged uh, because of the color of his skin. Uh, he was seen as a threat uh, when he when he apparently was not, and given that, uh, the worst outcome possible happened. And that's a fear that many uh, parents live with uh, of African-American men, young men, and uh, certainly, uh, again, uh, my my wife and I would tell my son sometimes who would also run uh, to do things like put on a shirt. And we live in a neighborhood where I'm not sure the white parents had to tell their sons the same thing. So yeah. Amy? because of his, Ooh, his sheer physicality, some, sometimes he, he cut a threatening uh, figure when he really was not. Amy? Um, no, I mean, Leroy brings up a really great point, and I think that more broadly what it sort of shows, one of the things that we know is that prosecutors generally decline to prosecute hate crimes, violations, even when they can, because it can be very difficult to prove. Um, the uh, what, what you have to show is that not simply that there is, for example, a history of racial animus, but that it motivated the act that is particularly being discussed. And so they had to show here that, in fact, if Ahmaud Arbery was white, the same outcome wouldn't have happened. And so in some ways, it's also really important that um, they were, number one, they went forward with the prosecution um, and that they were able to prove that uh, to a jury. Um, the jury actually deliberated for less than four hours, which was kind of an important point there. And I think it sort of goes to show, right, not only – I think it also relates it is it is hard to look at this verdict and not also tie it to the broader conversations that we're having um, and also the concerns that people are raising about whether or not, for example, we can discuss um, historical facts that also tie into issues of race about um, even the debates over, for example, critical race theory, because what was shown very graphically and in a quite ugly manner during this trial was that there is a lot of racial animus that exists. Um, it was It's hard not to conclude that they were, in fact, racist and bigoted, and it was ugly, and it was involved more people that they were discussing with. And so that is sort of, I think, an important part of it. And it, it laid bare publicly in a way that has broader repercussions, not only for the legal system and what prosecutors might decide to do now, showing that they can get a successful conviction. And so perhaps they don't need to decline pursuing those charges. Um, we now actually have a similar law in Georgia that didn't exist um, prior to Ahmaud Arbery's uh, murder. Um, but it also, I think, speaks to the broader debates that we're having and how much this may still exist or not exist in our society. Greg? 
Yeah, what strikes me, too, is how much change this has affected in, in Georgia politics and the local government, because not so long ago you'd see politicians condemn you know, this, 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 this murder, this tragedy, and then kind of move on. But in this case, you had Republicans and Democrats uniting to pass first the hate crimes law that, as Bill, you well know, languished for almost two decades, um, and then repeal a statute dating to the Civil War uh, about citizens' arrest. And then local government down in, in Glenn County, the prosecutor's office and the local police department has been almost entirely overhauled. New procedures have been put in place, a new leadership. And so this has affected change on the local and state level um, in a way that we would not have seen just a few years ago, probably. Um, th- thank you for r- reminding us of, of the fact that the Arbery death did result in some changes in Georgia law that we can all really celebrate today. Uh, Benjamin, before we let you go, if you don't mind, I- I'm going to ask you a rather broad question, and-, and I hope you'll excuse me for putting you on the spot to try to answer this. Um, you're relatively new to Georgia. And um, you came down to run the Savannah Bureau, and one of the, and the, certainly the biggest story that you've uh, looked at since you've come here has been the Arbery trial. And, and I'm curious what your impressions have been of watching all this unfold as a guy who came down here from the north um, in, in the way the Brunswick community, the family, the prosecutors, how, this, how everyone took this on and, and what kind of impressions you got of South Georgia as a result of this. Sure. Um, I guess one of the things that stood out to me throughout this whole case, I guess both of the, the trials, criminal, rather the state and the federal trial, is just how much of a role faith has played uh, in terms of how the family has gotten through this. Um, Marcus Arbery was was started off by giving all glory to God. And I think, you know, this often gets glossed over in terms of media coverage, but just how important it is. Um, in terms of their faith and getting something through, getting through something that is so traumatic, um, having to relive all this trauma in a state courtroom and a federal courtroom. So that's something that just strikes me here um, in terms of, uh, I guess, for like a better word, culture, but, you know, it really goes into, into religion. Um, and so also there's been a lot of frustration uh, by among the community in terms of transparency, uh, especially with this federal trial, because they haven't been able to watch video of of the proceedings because federal rules prevent that sort of thing from happening. So if you wanted to see what's going on, you actually had to be in the courtroom, which is very small. I was in there once during jury selection. Um, I personally didn't feel comfortable there because of COVID concerns and some people weren't wearing masks, which I thought was odd because it was a federal building. But there was a lot of frustration over transparency with this case. And so there, for that reason, there may not be much attention paid to the sentencing portion, which hasn't been scheduled yet because, um, well, there may not be as much attention because people can't actually see it playing out like they could with Judge Walmsley uh, giving his, for lack of a better word, lecture to the defendants. And I'm sure a similar lecture will be given by Judge Lisa Godby-Wood. And what's important to note here is that uh, Lisa Godby-Wood, she takes sentencing very seriously. I was reading an article from the University of Georgia's website uh, about a lecture that she gave in 2016 And she said, quote, more than any other area of law, sentencing holds up a mirror to society and shows us who we are, unquote. So I think that's really going to be telling as to how she handles sentencing. We're likely to hear again from members of Arbery's family. 
Uh, and so this goes beyond just the how much uh, how many years behind bars that these defendants are going to serve, because in some ways it's sort of a moot point uh, because they're all serving life sentences aside from, well, Roddy Bryan is as well, but he's the only one who's up for has the chance for parole after 30 years. Uh, so I think in terms of looking forward, we should really pay attention to how sentencing plays out as, as difficult as it is to follow uh, the proceedings in the courtroom because they are off limits to to cameras and uh, and recorders and photos. Benjamin Payne, we really appreciate your spending a few minutes with us today on Political Rewind, and thank you for your coverage uh, down there in uh, Brunswick. We really are grateful that we have you down at the Savannah Bureau. Let's do this. Uh, Let's take our first break of Political Rewind, and when we come back, there's another story that deals with race in a historical context that Greg Bluestein reported on in the AJC the other day. We're going to talk about that and more after these messages. Amy Steigerwald, Fred Smith, Leroy Chapman, and Greg Bluestein uh, joined me for uh, Political Rewind. Uh, Greg, let's uh, talk about the story that you filed for the AJC. Um, a, a chapter in our history that I knew about in only the most vague terms, um, in 1912, the residents, the white residents of Forsyth County drove out more than a thousand black people who lived in the county at that point with using uh, threats of violence, uh, intimidation. And you describe it as racial cleansing, which is a really chilling term. Yeah, I think it's accurate. Um... Uh, look, I'm a product of Georgia public school system in Metro Atlanta. I never grew up learning about this. I didn't grow up in Forsyth County, but I grew up in North Fulton. And uh, I've, I've just only recently come to uh, come to understand what happened. Um, and the AJC is going to have more coverage of this for the Black History Month um, series that my colleague Ernie Suggs has been in charge of. So there'll be even more coverage of this. But I went to an event on Friday that Congresswoman Carolyn Bordeaux organized with some of the descendants of of the victims and other community leaders. And I just came away, A, having learned a lot more about this, this, this atrocity. B, um, my angle was kind of what those community leaders and advocates are going to be doing to raise the education level so that more people like, like us know about it, um, especially in light of new efforts to guide how race and gender and other issues are taught in the classrooms. There are fears from these community leaders uh, and these descendants of the victims, um, that this could be kind of papered over, that it might not get the attention that it deserves. But there is a lot more going on in the community. There's a new scholarship for descendants of the exile. There's a House resolution that Bordeaux and every Democratic member of the, of the Georgia delegation sponsored to raise awareness about this. And there's a new historical marker uh, in downtown coming the county seat of Forsyth. So there's efforts underway, but really the concern is that, that the pandemic and this, these new legislation, the new, the new discussion about education policy will only delay what, what advocates hope will be a more defined coursework for students in Forsyth County and beyond to learn about what happened. Um, so Fred, uh, I've known for many, many years that the old that the image of Forsyth County. Now, the county has changed dramatically at this moment. I mean, it's a different place than it was even in the late 20th century. Um, 
and I've for a long time it's had the stigma of being a, a community that African Americans wanted to stay out of, uh, that it was unwelcoming to blacks. Um, but this, the fact that it was grounded in this event that took place in 1912, or series of events, was something that I knew virtually nothing about. And what I think about, Fred, is what Greg just pointed out. Uh, some of the legislation being uh, debated down at the Capitol could make it hard for teachers to talk about what happened in Forsyth County for fear it would make some students feel uncomfortable that they were being blamed for their white for what white people had done so many years ago. Fred? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, so first, um, yeah, that, I mean, that event in 1912 or series of events um, in which uh, a decision was made that they wanted to be an all-white county and uh, 1,000 uh, black residents were driven out of the county. Another dimension of that um, that uh, uh, activists like Pat Gunn uh, and Max Hess are looking at is the property dimension because some of those individuals mm -hmm. own property. And when you look at deeds from the following year, uh, suddenly all of that property was either in the hands of the government or was in the hands of others. Um, and uh, and I think one part of the story that, that, that I think still is uh, something of a mystery is exactly um, how that part happened. Um, in terms of the, uh, the the educational piece, sure. I mean, the fact that there are these attacks on critical race theory, I, I don't think it's enough to simply say, well, critical race theory isn't happening in K through 12. Um, because if you stop there, right, the, the, the one, you know, what reasonably conclude, then why not ban it if it's not happening anyway? And the answer is that what then happens is that people then go searching for anything that has anything to do with race. Uh, and they start doing things like the, the school board in McGinn County, uh, Tennessee, which voted 10 to 0 uh, last month to ban a book about the Holocaust, the, the book Mouse, right? Uh, they just, it, it, it kind of creates this sort of hunt where, well, where is, where are discussions about um, race happening? Um, and, uh, yeah, and so I think it's, it's reasonable to be fearful um, that uh, a book about or, uh, or information about uh, a racial cleansing um, right here in Georgia in 1912 um, could at some point um, fall, will be in the crosshairs of people who, um, who don't want, um, who don't want conversations about Georgia's past uh, to be told accurately. Uh, Amy and then Leah and, and then Leroy, please. <clears throat> um, it's a hard one to try to sort of assess. I mean, in some ways, right, this is about not only, right, so on the one hand, there is the historical facts, right? And they really don't change, right? This happened. We have lots and lots of evidence of it. We, right, there are historical records that show it. There are those who, right, were alive and wrote histories of it. And so we, we know what happened. And so the issue that we now confront today is how do we then address it? And where sort of the biggest concern I think comes in, and this is, this is personal opinion, let's just say I'm certainly not speaking for the university system um, or Georgia State or my department, but where the concern comes in is how, is when we are asked to present some of this in, are told we can talk about it, but we need to do so, for example, in a neutral way or an unbiased way. What happened in Forsyth County, as Greg said, can be accurately termed a racial cleansing, right? It was certainly racially motivated. Uh, 
there were people who were also lynched. Those were those who were killed. And then everybody else was drawn out. And it, there is no sort of, I guess the question is, is what's neutral about that, right? I can't present it in a way that suggests that it was not, in fact, tied to these issues. Um, discussing the Holocaust, right, for similar reasons is difficult. Yes, a bunch of people were killed because of their religion, their ethnicity, their ancestry, um, and it was motivated for those reasons. And so the, the issue becomes, what does that look like, right? If we say it's supposed to be neutral, um, what's, and the, does that mean I'm supposed to give an alternative argument? Am I supposed to argue for, right, the residents of Forsyth back in 1912 when they decided to, right, push out everyone who was not white? Am I supposed to present the arguments of, of Hitler and, and the Nazis about why it is they felt like the correct thing to do was to build uh, concentration and death camps. Um, and I think sort of the other side of that then also is sort of this question of kind of distress. And I guess I think on that one, I, this one, this is a very personal response, but you know, my son, it turns out came home and they've been reading their, their, you know, during World War II, they're learning about the Holocaust. And the truth is, is like kids are able to separate it out and they're able to learn from it and put it in and understand it as history. And yes, they ask questions like, why did people do this? Like, why? I don't understand. Um, and it's difficult to try to talk it through with them, but at the same time, they understand why they're learning about it. And it's important that we teach them about it because as you know, the frame, the historians sort of always say, if we don't teach history, then it's simply going to repeat itself. And that's why we have to learn from it, right? Because we want it to not happen again. Yeah, so, you know, one of the things that we're following uh, is, you know, what this might mean across Georgia with teaching our children about, I mean, not only our history, but, but some of our contemporary history. And what I mean by that is, uh, this is some perspective, I'm 50 years old. My, my grandfather was born in 1909, which is when this would have happened. I mean, I'm from South Carolina, but... But some of this, these things were happening. In fact, uh, in Abbeville, South Carolina, we had family there where something very similar happened after lynching, and uh, African Americans left in mass because of it. So we're, we're we're talking about our family history. I mean, this is the South, right? So, so just just for perspective, my grandfather was born in 1909 when this was happening. I'm 50 years old, and his granddaughter, his great granddaughter, I'm sorry, uh, just graduated high school. So someone who very much would be in a school learning about this sort of thing. So I think the issue is going to be this moving forward with critical race theory and how we talk to it and any prohibitions that we wind up adopting is that we probably in some areas of the state will have schools, school boards and, um, you know, teachers and administrators who will certainly um, still uh, because of their makeup. And when we're talking about like the DeKalb School District and Clayton School District, others, who very much will feel comfortable talking about race and will not probably be tied up at all because the, the parents and the, the school systems are comfortable talking about these issues. But what we may have is a different sort of education in places where, uh, like Forsyth County, where the politics are hot and people might, the, the school districts may get tied up in, in knots about how to interpret these laws, which uh, I think politically, speak to a, a, a the politics, but don't necessarily speak to the practicality of how do you make sure that we have an education that in Georgia is equitable and uh, and is understandable broadly 
<laughs> so I think where we're going to, where we could wind up and what we're watching for is, you know, how does that play out? So it, it's a fascinating thing. And I think it really speaks to uh, the moment and who we are right now. Greg? Yeah, notably, a lot of the legislative proposals involving this moving forward don't say critical race theory outright. They say divisive concepts, right? Broad terms. And it's really important. Um, Leroy just mentioned the great work that our AJC colleagues have done on, on reporting about what parents and teachers. GPB's Riley Bunch also did a terrific story about the chilling effect um, that educators could be feeling, facing if some of this legislation passes who are uncomfortable because this encompasses such a broad term. So what, what are divisive concepts, right? Uh, and the legislation tries to define this, and there are reasons why supporters say that this is necessary, uh, but teachers are kind of caught in the middle. And even at this meeting I was at on Friday, there's an educator there who's worried about even saying anything at this meeting because she teaches in Forsyth County and was worried that she could lose her job even by coming to a meeting and talking about the need to provide historical perspective and context um, to, to what happened 110 years ago in that community. Um, you know, F Fred, oh, Fred, go ahead, weigh in before I make my comment. Yeah, I mean, I just want to say, when you in thinking through this, uh, so many folks are harmed when we don't talk about the past. Uh, the children are harmed. The present is, ha is harmed. The future is harmed uh, because people don't have any context for what they're seeing around them. But what's also harmed are the victims, the people themselves, their memory, their honor, right? Um, and I just want to lift that up, right, that, that when... Uh, that when we refuse to talk about important aspects of history um, and we tell a deeply one-sided story, um, that's part of whom we continue to dishonor. Um, Leroy, what I started to say a minute ago <clears throat> is I, I mentioned briefly that although this uh, racial cleansing took place in 1912, there were racial incidents in Forsyth County, as there, as there are everywhere. Forsyth County is not unique in that sense. Um, it, it, well into the 20th century. In 1987, uh, Hosea Williams led a small group of civil rights marchers up into Forsyth, and they were uh, essentially attacked uh, by people in the county. Um, that triggered one of the most remarkable events, Leroy, that I covered in my career as a, a reporter for WSB-TV, and that was going back up to Forsyth with more than 20,000 people who came in from all over the country to say they were not going to stand for the kind of racist behavior uh, that they saw in the first Hosea Williams march. And it was a remarkable day and a show of solidarity among uh, thousands of people, white, black, Asian-Americans. Um, but, of course, the bigger point is that as recently as then, uh, there was still a great deal of racist feeling in that county. I am a member of the National Association of Black Journalists. Uh, I still have fellow journalists ask about Forsyth County because they remember what happened. Some of them deployed here uh, into Georgia to, to cover it. Uh, many of them, of course, were shocked to understand that Forsyth County uh, still had some, uh, culturally was still uh, very much uh, stuck in an era that many had thought were, was, was bygone. And how could it, this place be so close to Atlanta, which for Georgia, for this country, uh, is a symbol of, of 
racial progress <laughs> and, and, of course, builds itself that way. So, uh, you know, the, the, the dissonance with that uh, is remarkable, and, uh, and I think people are still interested in, in, in the fate of Forsyth County because that certainly still defines that area. Absolutely, and Oprah Winfrey really put it on the map by coming down and doing a show uh, uh, dedicated to what had happened at Forsyth. Greg, before we take the break, let's bring this around to where we started this conversation. It is really important to say that Forsyth County in 2022 has certainly made some progress. It is not what it has been in the past. And I think your story about how there are people there trying to memorialize 1912 and learn lessons from it is is uh, it, it tells us that the, that we should no longer be willing to be so quick to condemn an entire county's behavior. Oh, for sure. And one of the refrains from the, the descendants of the victims was they were impressed and and enthusiastic about the number, the multiracial group that was in that room. And it was in this church in Sewanee uh, where this event took place. And all the, the advocates who have come out, many of them are, are white or Hispanic or Asian American. And they are also pressing for this to be taught in their communities. So there is a true multiracial coalition. Um, there, there, there's a book written about it called Blood and Root um, that, that has exposed this to a, a national audience as well. So um, I think that underscores everything is that there, there is a united sort of uh, multiracial group that is that wants to, to, to help spread what has happened beyond Forsyth County even. Okay, uh, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. When we come back, hey, let's talk about electoral politics with this panel. You're listening to Political Rewind. Greg Bluestein, you pointed out to us early this morning that United States Senate candidate Herschel Walker running as a Republican for the nomination to uh, run against Raphael Warnock is really angry at both David Perdue and Brian Kemp in their battle for governor. Let's listen to what he had to say about that and then discuss it. Who do you support for the uh, governor's race? I don't uh, support either one of them. I'm mad at both of them. <laughs> and I, I, I speak the truth. Let me tell you what, I've known Governor Kemp since I was 16 years old. I've known Senator Perdue since I was 19. And this is what I want to say to everyone here. I've told, I want to bring this party together. We got to bring this party together. And what has happened now is some people get sour grapes and they don't get out and vote. But I want to say this to whoever loses that race, whether it's Governor Kemp or Senator Purdue, he needs to tell his people to go vote for the other. Yeah. It is time for you to start having sour grapes and think about this part. Obviously, the audio is not great. That was at an event uh, where, Greg? That was at University of North Georgia up in Dahlonega uh, to, to a group of students. And it's a departure from what we've heard Herschel Walker and really any other candidate say about the governor's race. A lot of candidates. Uh, a lot of uh, high-profile politicians and even rank-and-file Republicans have wanted to stay away, say, hey, I'm not, I'm not focused. Or they might back you know, Brian Kemper or David Perdue. But in this case, you have Herschel Walker really for the first time saying not only is he going to stay out of it, we knew he was going to probably stay on the sidelines of this one, um, but he's saying he's mad at both Governor Kemp and Senator, former Senator Perdue, and he's going to stay. Uh, he's not going to support either one of them. And he, and he's, and he worries about sour grapes bringing down the Republican Party. So he's kind of putting voice 
to the frustration we've heard from a lot of voters, <laughs> Republican voters, about this primary fight. He is now the sort of face of this of this anger like, toward, towards that. <laughs> well, level. yep. Sorry, but yeah, but Amy, I mean, I get it. If he's angry at David Perdue, Perdue decided to jump into the primary and make it a primary contest with Brian Kemp. But what did he expect Brian Kemp to drop out when Perdue? In other words, I'm not quite clear on why Brian yeah. Kemp is a, a, a focus of his anger as well. It may be that that's the politic way to be able to uh, <laughs> criticize also, uh, you know, his backers favorite candidates, because obviously he is sort of breaking with uh, Senator or with uh, former President Trump by suggesting that there is an issue there. But, you know, more broadly, I mean, he's right. This is a terribly divisive and nasty primary, which has the possibility of only further dividing Georgia Republicans. And to be perfectly blunt, it also, I mean, is a gift to the Democrats who get to just got to continue on and let them fight out and then we'll have whoever it is that wins will have lovely attack ads that they can just rerun that were run during the primary and so in that sense um it does make it really difficult it makes it difficult for people to want to turn out in after a really nasty race especially if they're being told that the other person is terrible is you know the thing that we have to guard against even more than the candidate on from the other party on uh, and we saw this become a problem actually when we had the runoff in january 2020 um that was or i guess they were 2020 in january 2021 from the november 2020 elections that there was a real drop off in uh, particularly republican turnout around the state and a lot some of that was tied um i think to sort of uh, vestiges from the November election, but I think some of it was also tied to some of these divisive primaries and the issue of what do I do now, right? I've been told the person who uh, is coming out of this is terrible, so how am I supposed to now turn out and vote for them? Yeah, uh, Fred, I didn't really mean to suggest there was some logic in why Herschel Walker would decide to focus on both uh, Kemp and Purdue, but I thought Amy gave it a good try. Uh, Fred, let's talk about it from a different point of view. I, and I, I want to—I'm going to go around the whole panel on this. Um, Purdue raised less than a million dollars in this last reporting period. Um, his polling up Trafalgar Group, which is certainly a conservative-oriented uh, uh, organization, put uh, Brian Kemp nine points ahead of him of, uh, of Purdue in, in the contest among Republican uh, voters. Yes, Purdue has— Trump's backing, but uh, you know th th the signs aren't good for him building any energy and momentum, are they? Um, you know, I wouldn't count him out. Uh, and the fact that he's raised less than a million dollars and is still polling at forty percent uh, before President Trump has mm -hmm. even kind of come down and really sort of uh, done his done the Trump thing <laughs> um, with with rallies and the like, assuming that that takes place. Um, you know, that's that's not a place where uh, where if I were in Brian Kemp's camp where I would be um, super confident. Uh, you know, it's it, it's shaping up, I think, to be uh, a reasonably competitive race. Um, and, you know, down the line in terms of what that means, you know, it could it could be another year where there's a nasty Republican primary and, and folks come together in the end. We've seen that before. 
Um, it could be like Democrats uh, in 2006 with Kathy Cox and Mark Taylor, where Democrats did not come together after. Uh, mm. And so uh, and it's, it's just too early to know um, which story is being told. And I think what Herschel Walker was trying to say uh, is that he's hopeful that, uh, that this is an instance of Republicans coming together. And it's an example, I think, of he's not kind of seasoned in electoral politics. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, the, the language, I mean, that, that quote, um, I'm angry at both of them, uh, is not something that, a, that it's not something that if he, if he is a politician in three or four years, I imagine that he won't be saying things like that anymore. <laughs> um, Leroy, uh, I, Fred makes an excellent point. You cannot count David Perdue out in this race, even though right now the dynamics of the race seem to be leaning in Brian Kemp's uh, favor. Uh, of course, uh, it's interesting the Trafalgar Group poll also, I think, showed that like 40% of the people they surveyed did not know that Purdue had the endorsement of Donald Trump. Uh, that's significant. And of course, they will su- they will know about it full well when uh, uh, Purdue goes down to Mar-a-Lago for a March 16th fundraiser that uh, Trump will uh, be the headliner of. Leroy? Yeah, that's true. But I think there's still something to be determined here about the power of Trump's endorsement. Um, Of course, it's consequential. There's no doubt about that. But uh, I think the polling that we've seen here recently, um, we polled and uh, there was a Quinnipiac poll as well that looked at uh, and asked directly, you know, would a Trump endorsement make a difference in how you voted? And among Republicans, uh, it was around the low 40s. So, uh, when you think about where Trump had been in terms of the party being in lockstep with him, um, you know, that's still a, 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 an undecided group and a group who said it wouldn't have any influence. So given that, um, yes, it, 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 Kemp should be, as he is, um, you know, worried about what that means and what a sustained campaign by Trump could, could be. So I think it's, it's sort of Trump's investment. Uh, because I don't think we necessarily know uh, how full-throated it might be. Uh, it could be. But also, too, I think that polling doesn't say that, uh, that that Trump will be as decisive maybe as we think. So I cannot wait to find out. <laughs> <laughs> Greg? Yeah, I think both the professor and the editor, my editor, are spot on because on, on one hand, you know, it's way too early to count David Perdue out. He's at 40% in these polls. He's, he's within single digits in some of them. And, and as was mentioned, there's a significant block of the Republican Party that still doesn't know about Trump's endorsement. And David Perdue will do everything in his power to make sure they know. He's a second round of, outs, uh, of ads out today that cost us $600,000, so significant money behind them, um, that are all Trump. You know, it's a second round of ads that are focused on Trump's endorsement. And when Donald Trump comes down for a rally later this spring, uh, it'll be hard to escape that news. But at the same time, we also don't know just how potent Trump's endorsement still is. So that's why Georgia is the test case um, for all of that nationally. And it's why Georgia is going to be such a fun battleground state. But David Perdue is doing everything he possibly can to make people know that, that, that um, <laughs> Donald Trump endorsed him. And Brian Kemp is using Donald Trump's words against David Perdue in his latest radio ad. So it's very fascinating to watch. All right, uh, Amy, let, we've only got a couple minutes left, but I want to try to get one more subject in, and I'll start with you on this. Um, we know Brian Kemp is hopeful that teachers are going to support his campaign, vote for him. He's offered, he promised big raises back uh, when he was running the first time. He's fulfilled that promise. On the other hand, he's supporting some of these measures that uh, 
some teachers at least think are undercutting the professional way in which they deal with their classes. Um, most recently now, the Parents' Bill of Rights has passed, is moving forward in the Senate. That gives parents uh, much more easier access to see what their children are reading, studying, whatever, which they have anyway if they go in and talk. Uh, but what's interesting to me about this Parents' Bill of Rights is that um, if teachers don't feel like they're being treated as professionals who have an expertise in terms of education, it's like my going to, with my daughter to the dentist and saying to the dentist, you know, I'm looking at her truth, too. She doesn't really need a root canal. I think she just needs to have a, a filling, Amy. <laughs> That's really an, an excellent analogy to use, Bill, and I, and I think it does speak more broadly that one of the, well, okay, this is a little bit of a soapbox, but, uh, you know, one of my personal, that one of the crises that we have with, I think, education, especially in K through 12, is there is this kind of dual thing that on the one hand, education is fundamentally important, and on the other hand, we many times treat teachers as though they're glorified babysitters as opposed to recognizing that, in fact, they're educators and they do a huge amount of work. They work weekends, they work nights, they work summers, even if right, school is not in. And we don't really pay them what they're worth and we don't value the work that they do. And so that has sort of broader um, ramifications. And the issue with the Parents' Bill of Rights is that on one hand, um, it's actually even more so that under state law, you can already do all of these things. And in fact, right, especially these days, right, the assignments are posted on Google Classroom and you can just go and look at them. But what it's suggesting is that, in fact, educators shouldn't be trusted to be able to come up with lesson plans. Um, that parents should be able to overcut them and take them out. And it's a question of how far does it go, right? Do you get to say you don't get to be in science class anymore or there's a problem there and how much work is it now creating in even more so kind of, as you said, suggesting that they're not valued for the actual work they do. Amy Steigerwald, giving you, you got the last word in uh, today's show. But before we leave, I do want to make one. Um, I do want to say one thing. Anybody who listens to the show regularly knows that I am a great, great admirer of the men and women who work in public health. Um, they they just do work that is so important and more important today than ever before. Uh, day before yesterday, we lost one of the greatest heroes of public health. Dr. Paul Farmer died. Uh, he was 62 years old. He was in Rwanda. He was there because he has worked on curing sick people around the world for his entire life. He was a physician, an anthropologist, a humanitarian, and um, he has been such an important force uh, for good in the world. I would encourage you, go to my Twitter, and uh, you'll see a link to a piece that Tracy Kidder, who wrote a book about Paul Farmer, uh, wrote for the New York Times today. And you'll learn why Dr. Paul Farmer, who worked in Haiti, Peru, Cuba, Russia, Mexico, and who said every single person deserves equal access to health care, especially when they're sick. So I just wanted to say a word about the great Paul Farmer and how the world at a cynical time will really miss him. We're out of time for today's show. Leroy Chapman, Fred Smith, Amy Steigerwald, Greg Bluestein. thank you so much for being with us. We're back again tomorrow. Take care. Stay healthy. See you then.